Well, I ran across a, uh, a story this week. I've, I've seen it before, but actually even got some pictures and stuff, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. But from a long time ago, 1929, actually, Georgia Tech played the University of California for the Rose Bowl that year. And in that game, uh, a player actually uh, pick, ended up picking up a fumble almost at the end zone and started running, uh, kind of got tackled and spun around, got confused, and started heading in the opposite direction. He ran 75 yards in the opposite direction and, and <laughs> until one of his own teammates actually caught up to him and tackled him just before he went in to the end zone just before he scored for the other team. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, in, in fact, he lives in infamy known as Wrong Way Regal, right? I mean, this it was it was a horrible kind of thing. Ended up uh, that much they went on and scored in the following play. Ended up actually uh, winning the game partially because of that. It was a horrible kind of thing, but they, that was in the first quarter. They went in at halftime, sat down. All the players kind of came in to see what was the coach going to say, right? And he went, sat in a corner, put a towel over his head, and literally cried. I mean, he just was, was devastated. When the team was ready to go back out onto the field for the second half, the coach stunned the team with the announcement. He said, the same players who started the first half will start the second half. All the players left the dressing room except for this young man, he would not budge. The coach looked back and he called to him again and said, didn't you hear what I said? Those that started the first half are gonna start the second half. He saw that this young man's uh, cheeks were wet with tears. And the player said, coach, I can't do it. I can't, I can't go out there. I've ruined you. I've disgraced the University of California. I can't face that stadium full of people again. This great coach put his hand on the player's shoulder and said, get up and go back in, Ray. He said, the game is only half over. Not a great coach. He went back in. He played actually an amazing second half. Had such a comeback throughout that year that became, he became the captain of Cal's football team. The following year, he gained All-American status. He later became a member of, of Cal's football program, or football coaching staff, and was eventually inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. You believe that? And I, I, I read that and I think, that's that's pretty, a pretty great coach, a coach that believes and lives out this whole idea of giving second chances to players, even players that have screwed up. And I th was thinking about that this weekend, thinking, man, how many times have we screwed up? How many of us have needed a second chance? How many of us have ever done or said something so stupid <laughs> to me that you're, you were mortified and just wanted to die, right? And yet you were in need of a second chance, an opportunity uh, to kind of have a redo, to have things taken back. I read an article uh, that was published in a newspaper in Idaho this week that police had received reports of a car driving backwards around a neighborhood over and over and over again. So the police got the call. They eventually go to the neighborhood and stop this teenage girl driving around the neighborhood in reverse. The girl told the police that her parents had let her use the car but uh, she'd gone out with friends and put on way more miles than she was supposed to, and she was afraid that she would get in trouble. So she was driving in reverse to try and undo, to kind of to try and turn the odometer backwards so that she could take back some of what she had done. And I thought, I read that, and I thought, yeah, she was looking for a second chance. She was looking for a redo, an undo kind of button on the car, right? Well, we are on week number four of a series that we're doing here at Ignite uh, called The Pursuit, God's Heart for Rebels. And it's a series on the book of Jonah, a little four-chapter-long book towards the end of the Old Testament. Jonah is a story about one man's rebellion 
One guy's running from God and God's tireless pursuit of him as well as countless others in the story. God pursuing Jonah, God pursuing others to show his love, to show his power, his forgiveness, and actually to give second chances to, uh, to many people to help them find their way back home to God. The story of, of Jonah, as we mentioned last week, is really a story about humanity. It's, it's really a story about us because there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. Well, in case you missed some of the series or maybe you're a little unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, I thought I would give you a little synopsis of the book of Jonah this morning in rhyme, okay? This is Jonah according to Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Listen to this. This is great. One day, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Could you, would you go to preach? Could you, would you go to reach the people of Assyria for you fit my criteria? Jonah said to the Lord, I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there in a float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea, so stop this talk and let me be, right? The story of Jonah. <laughs> That's pretty much the book of Jonah in a nutshell. Today we're going to look through and walk through Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to learn some lessons about second chances. So we'll read through the whole thing. It's only 10 verses long, and then draw some conclusions and kind of walk back through there. Just a reminder, chapter 1 is all about God's call to Jonah. Jonah, would you, you know, go to the people of Nineveh and proclaim the message I have there? And Jonah responds by doing what? Running from God, right? So he takes off, runs in the opposite direction. Chapter 2 is about Jonah repenting, right? He's inside the belly of a fish, the belly of a whale. He's at the bottom of the ocean. He has nowhere else to turn. And so in that moment, it's a prayer. Chapter 2 is a prayer where he repents. He turns back to God. He cries out. And chapter 3 is really about God restoring Jonah and about God giving second chances to people. So let's read that. Jonah chapter 3, starting with verse 1, says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What does that say, by the way? A second time. Let's say that, that, yeah, that was pretty weak. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What does that say? A second time, right? He says, to the, he says this to him. Literally, it means arise, Jonah, arise. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so Jonah rose up and obeyed the word of the Lord this time. Yeah, good idea. And he went to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to walk across it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites, it says, this is crazy, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let, him, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, he was merciful, and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. 
All right, so here's the big picture of Jonah th- chapter 3, right? The, sort of the sermon in a sentence is this, is that God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. We see it all the way through the entire book, but we see it especially in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. What did it say? A second time. Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to him the first time, uh, and God spoke, and Jonah ran. He rebelled. He went, in his, he went his own way. He tried to run 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. Jonah was hard-hearted. Jonah was prideful. God, I don't want to go to Nineveh. He said, I hate those people, was sort of the idea. Jonah was stubborn, but God was patient with him. God was gracious. God brought Jonah back, humbled him, and gave him a second opportunity, a second chance. A second time, God calls to Jonah, Jonah, go to the people of Nineveh. He gives him a second chance. Pretty cool, right? But that's not the second chance that I think is most jaw-dropping in Jonah chapter 3. Because not only did God give a second chance to a stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious, religious guy named Jonah, but the jaw-dropping one in the story is that God was gracious and gave a second chance to a brutal and evil people like the city, like those that lived in the city of Nineveh. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Nineveh was the place, uh, the, 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 the place that God was telling Jonah to go, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were the arch enemy of Jonah's people, and they hated them, and to some degree, rightly so. The Assyrians were known for being unnecessarily brutal enemies. There are stories peppered throughout history about the inhumane and brutal treatment, the torturing and the killing that the Assyrians would do of conquered enemies. They'd skin people alive. They'd bury people in the desert up to their necks and let them bake to death in the sun. They would pull out their tongues or drive stakes through people's tongues. And then when people finally died, they'd decapitate them. They'd collect all the heads and put them at the city gate as a warning to anybody else who would dare defy the Assyrian capital, the Assyrian people. They'd be like, bring it on. This is what happens to our enemies. You want a piece of this? Right? I mean, it was kind of an intimidation kind of thing. But these people were known for being completely brutal, for being Horrible. They were notorious enemies. In fact, so much so that when people would hear that the Assyrian army was marching towards their city, sometimes entire cities would kill themselves rather than be turned over to the Assyrians. That's the kind of fear. That's the kind of people, the kind of things that they were known for. The level of brutality and evil, sort of the disregard for human life, uh, would be something similar to ISIS or maybe something similar to the Islamic extremists that we all heard about this week in Paris, right? opening fire, setting off explosives to innocence, right? It just, it, it's crazy. It's unthinkable. Now, to bring this back to the story, I mean, imagine this. God sends Jonah to them with a message, with a message that's meant to turn people's hearts back to God, that's meant to bring them to the point of getting, receiving a second chance of finding forgiveness, God sends Jonah to these people, to these extremists, to these brutal, evil enemies of Israel. And to everyone's horror and surprise, the people respond. This is they believe God, right? They repent. They turn back home. They cry out to God that he would forgive them, that he would give them a second chance. And what does God do? He does it, right? I mean, God forgives them. God gives them a second chance. God, in, in, in this language, relents, right? He, he's merciful. 
He doesn't bring judgment on that day because God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances to prideful, arrogant, right? Prophets and religious people like Jonah who look down their noses on others and think, you're worse than I am. And he's the God of second chances to people who have been known for the most horrific things imaginable and everywhere in between because it's not just something that God does. God is a God of second chances. It's, what, it's who he is, not just what he does. Listen to this. This is from 2 Peter. I thought this tied in beautifully because this is the story of the Bible, not just the story of Jonah. 2 Peter 3, uh, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient, not wanting, what does that say? Not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting what? Everyone to come back home, to come to turn to him in repentance. I mean, can you see God's heart there? God longs to be gracious to everyone. He longs for all to come to him, to find life and forgiveness, to experience a transformation. And you and I have got to understand this. God is a God of second chances, not just to those who think they deserve it, but maybe especially to those that know they don't. God is a God of second chances. You have never locked eyes with somebody that God isn't crazy about. Never happened. You've never met somebody that God does not want to experience his forgiveness and life and find a fresh start and a second chance. And until you and I understand that God is gracious, not just to people like us, but also to people like the Ninevites, until we get the, the whole picture here, we miss out on the fullness of God's heart. Because there's nothing we could do. There's nowhere we could run that God isn't there offering us a second chance, offering us a way out. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you've said no to God in the past once or twice or ten times or a thousand times, right? You said no, 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 no. If you've been hard-hearted, if you've done stupid and rebellious things, if you've turned around and, and basically spat in God's face and run in your own direction, doesn't matter if you've been prideful, if you've said horrible things to people around you, if you've done horrific or even brutal acts towards others, if you've been a God-hater, a non-believer, if you've broken every one of the Ten Commandments or you think you've broken none, huh, it doesn't matter. Because God is a God of second chances. He longs to be gracious to you. He longs to forgive and to make new. You don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. None of us do. But a fresh start, a second chance is sitting there waiting for you and waiting for me today if you're humble enough to receive it. If you're humble enough to turn back to God and cry out and say, I need you. Put your trust and faith in him. There's a second chance awaiting you even today because God is a God of second chances. It's the story of Jonah. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of human history, is it not? Right? We've talked about this before where things are going along great and then we go our own direction. We screw up. We rebel. We do whatever. The bottom drops out on our lives. We experience some of the pain and consequences for that kind of thing. God uses that to draw us back home to him. We repent. We turn back. We say we're sorry and he starts restoring us and bringing us back home. It's the cycle of humanity. It's happened since the beginning of time, right? Over and over and over. And yet God continues to be gracious even now. He continues to draw us back home 
to orchestrate our lives in a way that we would turn to him, that we would cry out, God, we need you. Would you forgive us and make us clean? And he gives second chances and third chances and fourth chances and on and on. It's the story of Jonah chapter 3. In the time we've got left, I just want us to, to look at, at three different things. Sort of God brings second chances to, to these kinds of hearts and to these kinds of people. Okay, I'm, we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit. This is all from Jonah chapter 3. God brings second chances into being in the lives of those whose hearts are humble, right? To those with humble hearts. Throughout the series, I've been kind of talking throughout Jonah, right? We've been talking about the word up and down that the, the writer uses intentionally to, to kind of paint some pictures for us. God's trying to communicate something through these words. For instance, in Jonah chapter 1, we said, God speaks to Jonah. He says, Jonah, would you rise up and go to Nineveh? And, and Jonah rises up turns around and runs in the opposite direction, right? We, we, we said that, then it's, it begins this whole downward spiral. He went down to Joppa. He went down and got on a ship. He went down and went to the bottom of the ship. He gets picked up and thrown overboard down into the sea. He gets swallowed into a fish and goes down, right? There's this whole down, 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 down word spiral that happens in Jonah's life. Chapter 2, when Jonah's at the absolute low point, it's the first time we start seeing the word up ascribed to Jonah, right, where he turns, he has nowhere else to run, and he turns, and he, it says, he lifts up his prayers to God, right, his prayers rise to God, he starts crying out, God, I need you, God, would you forgive me, God, would you save me, and then he says, you know what, God brought me up from the depths, right, he brought me up again, in fact, at the last verse of chapter 2, we see that uh, Jonah gets spit up or vomited up onto dry ground. He's, he's rescued. It's, it's the first time we're seeing this upward sort of momentum happen. And I want you to pay attention because uh, here we see kind of the, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, we start seeing kind of the full picture. Last week we talked about uh, that when uh, God speaks and he convicts and he's trying to draw us back home, uh, when our pride is high, we said, Oftentimes, God will, will raise the level of pain in our lives to match our pride until we humble, until we're humbled and we turn back, we see our need and turn back home to God. And then God's gracious and restores and heals and that kind of thing. But I want you to see the rest of the picture now in Jonah 3, uh, verse, starting with verse 6. It says this. This is fascinating with the king. Watch the up and down kind of language. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, it says, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat what? Down. It's a sign of humility. He sat down in the dust. It's a picture of repentance. And then he proclaims, uh, this, this proclamation gets made to all the people. And he encourages, uh, he encourages basically a nationwide fast that people would fast and pray and repent and turn back to God so that God would forgive and be gracious this king whose life has been characterized again by brutality and by evil, when he hears God's message, when he hears God's word, instead of fleeing in pride, instead of starting down that downward path, that downward spiral, he rises up, he puts on sackcloth, something sort of like burlap, and he sits down in the dust. It's a picture of repentance. Repentance, we said last week, was basically you're heading in this direction, and you do a 180, right? In the Bible, When the Bible uses the word repentance, it's talking about turning from our sin, our own rebellion, our own running away from God and turning back to the living God, crying out for him 
to forgive us and restore us in all that kind of thing. It's a picture of repentance. It's a way that, jo- or that the king is saying, I'm sorry to God. And then he orders all the people of the land to do the same, to cry out to God, to find, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for a second chance. And God answers and is gracious and gives them another chance. When we're filled with pride, God uses pain, right, to humble us. But when we voluntarily stoop down, when we voluntarily agree with God, right, when we voluntarily uh, exercise humility in our lives and say, you know what, and God confronts us and says, you know what, you're a rebellious people. You are worthy of judgment. The king says, you know what, you're right. He agrees with God. And then he cries out, I'm sorry. Would you forgive us? Would you give us a second chance? When we... When we are confronted with God's truth and we humble ourselves, this is what you see. You see God's restoring power. You see God's grace that gets poured out. You see second chances that get extended. The Bible tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He gives second chances. He gives forgiveness. He pours out his favor on those who choose the path of humility. Remember when I was a kid, I used to play tennis a lot, actually took lessons and, and pursued that quite a bit. And I remember having a, a tennis coach one time tell me uh, that he said, you know what? The truth is, is that most people don't want to be coached. They don't want to be coached. They don't want to be told how to improve. They don't want constructive criticism. They don't want somebody telling them what they're doing wrong and how to play at the next level. He said, the truth is, what we really want to hear is we just want to hear somebody tell us that we're doing a good job. That even if it's not true, they, they just want to hear that you're okay. And you know, I, I, I heard that and I've never forgotten it. It kind of played through it in my head over and over. And I think to some degree, I think that's kind of true. We do want to hear that. I mean, who, who likes to be confronted by something ugly in your life? Right? I bet there's a lot of hands going up, right? No, I mean, we're like, no, we'd rather hear, you know, everything's fine. We don't want to hear what's true. We want to <laughs> feel like everything is okay. We want to hear that we're better than most others. We want to think, uh, hear that you know, things are all okay in our lives, in our marriages, in whatever, our work. Uh, we don't want to think about having to change things. We want to believe that everything is fine. That's, to some degree, I think that's pride. I think it's probably laziness sometimes. I don't know. But here's the deal. Right? God speaks to Jonah, and Jonah's pride is what takes him down a giant downward spiral as he runs away from God. He doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to deal with his own prideful heart. He doesn't want to deal with his own prejudice, his own rebellion. He doesn't want to hear it, and so he runs away. The king, on the other hand, when he's confronted with the truth that he and his people have rebelled against God, that they, are, that they have acted in evil ways and they are deserving of judgment, he embraced the truth. He agreed with God in humility. He stooped down and he cried out for forgiveness. And he received grace. Humility opens the door for grace to come in. Humility opens the door for second chances. Pride just puts us on the path of pain. But humility, when we choose to stoop down, when we choose to cry out, to recognize our need, to recognize the things that are broken in us, to recognize the sin that exists even, and we're quick to turn back to God and say, God, would you forgive me that opens the door to grace opens the door to second chances so that's the that's the first one right second chances come to humble hearts the second one i want to mention and just talk about is it comes uh second chances come uh quickly to receptive hearts as well 
Look at this, Jonah 3, 4, and 5. It says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then it says this, the Ninevites believed God. So you kind of have to get the picture here, right? I mean, God sends Jonah into the city right, with, with the message basically, turn, repent, turn back to God, turn away from your sin, turn away from the junk and wickedness, turn back to God. It's, it's a sort of a, a, a standard message that you see throughout the prophets, right, in, in the Old Testament, where people would go their own way, they would be wayward, and God says, man, I'm going to send a prophet to warn the people, right, to say, man, if you keep going in this direction, it's going to be bad for you. Instead, would you turn back to God? Would you, would you cry out for his mercy and instead be restored to God? Because this is where the good life is at, life with God, right? This is the good stuff. You see this pattern over and over throughout the Old Testament. Prophets were known oftentimes to be sort of wordy, passionate, visual, and sometimes even poetic with their messages and delivering God's message and urging for people to repent. Just for perspective, I kind of looked at um, some of the prophetic books, uh, the ones on either side of Jonah, uh, just to kind of get an idea of, uh, of what their approach was like. Obadiah is the book uh, preceding Jonah, and in it, this prophet communicates to the people of Edom and warns them to repent. He tells them exactly what they've done wrong, and he tells them exactly what's going to happen if they don't repent, and urges people to turn back to God. All in all, the prophet uses 509 words to warn them. Micah is the book just after Jonah, and again, it's a real similar kind of theme. And in this book, the prophet speaks to the people of Israel. And again, he warns them that they need to turn away from their sin, turn back to God because judgment is going to come otherwise. And again, the prophet tells them exactly what they're doing wrong. He paints a picture of how horrible it will be for them if they continue on the same trajectory. And he tells them exactly what they must do in order to turn back to God and avert uh, the judgment that is coming. It's a very visual, very graphic, uh, very crystal clear message uh, from the prophet. All in all, um, Micah uses 750 words um, to, to sort of paint this picture. To, it's a 750 word message that he gives to the people of Israel, telling them that they must repent, they must turn back to God. And now we get to Jonah, okay? Jonah, again, God sends Jonah the same way he sent these other prophets. He sends him to the people of Nineveh, of Nineveh excuse me, again, his enemy, calling these people to turn back to God. In the original language, you want to guess how many words this is? The original language, Jonah uses a whopping five words. Look at that, five words. Uh, that's, that's his entire sermon. It's what we've lovingly around the office referred to as the worst message in history this week, right? It's the worst sermon ever preached. Five words, and here are basically the five words. The five words are, are basically, you're going to fry soon, right? In the next, you know, 40 days till you fry. I mean, that's basically it. And, and, and pro probably part of him was saying, and I, I hope you do, right? I mean, this is, at best, this is probably a half-hearted attempt. This is not an impassioned plea. This is not flowery words and graphic images about what will happen. There's nothing even in it saying about God's mercy, about turning back to God. He basically just says, 40 more days and Nineveh is toast. That's it. That's his entire message. 
It's a half-hearted plea. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen this before or not, but I can remember when I was in college, uh, this is actually even before I was a Christ follower, I ran across a couple people that would be wearing the, the repent billboards, like their sandwich boards, and uh, they'd come on the college campuses occasionally, and it, it was typically a real chipper message, <laughs> but it always had the word repent real big, and then there was something usually about hell, fire, right, brimstone, some of those kinds of things, and uh, they would be talking to people about how horrible uh, they were and how hot hell was going to be and how whatever. Now, again, I was not a Christ follower at the time. I never found these uh, kind of people to be terribly winsome. <laughs> In fact, I didn't really want anything to do with them. I was, you know, uh, I remember stumbling on uh, to these a couple of different times. I was never won over. It never even crossed my mind that I would want to agree with anything they would ever say, right? I was like, if, if there's a line in the sand and they're over there, I'm pretty sure I want to be here, right? I'm pretty sure I did not want to be in alignment with them because what you saw coming out of them seemed to be hate. What I thought of them is I thought, man, these are pride-filled people that, that feel great about telling other people just how bad they are. And I thought, if that's what that's about, I don't want anything to do with it. So, and I think that's probably a pretty common response. Do you think uh, this is a terribly effective form of evangelism? You think they win over a whole lot of converts with w wearing sandwich boards on the front and back and going around with their hellfire and brimstone sort of? Do you think that's a pretty effective in today's day and age? That was pretty weak. No. Yeah, I don't think so either. Now, here's the deal. So Jonah comes walking into town wearing his little five-word billboard with his five-word message of gloom and doom and his little smug, superior attitude. And he says, hey, 40 more days till you fry. That's, his, that's the entire sermon, right? And sort of under his breath, I hope you do. Now, with that kind of message, what kind of response would you assume he would get? You think that would go well for him? You think it would be hostile? Yeah, you think people would be ticked, right? Where do you, this foreigner, come, where do you get off, you know, with, with this kind of thing? What, you just got this little power trip, this little ego trip going, this little smug thing going on. What is, I mean, you wouldn't expect anybody to even listen to him. But the craziest thing happens. The craziest thing happens. The whole city gets converted. <laughs> Right? The entire city, it says, from the, the greatest to the least, 120,000 people that we know of believe God. They respond to God. And I asked myself the question, why this week? Why? I mean, this is the worst sermon ever preached. It was, I mean, Jonah's motive pretty sure wasn't pure in delivering it, right? He was not a clean vessel in this deal. He hated them. He wanted them to fry. The message itself was pretty weak. Why on earth was it so effective? You know, you want to know what the answer is? As it turns out, second chances have very little to do with the preacher and a whole lot to do with a gracious God and a heart, the heart of the recipient. It's why two people can come to church. They can sit side by side, sitting right next to each other. They can sing the exact same songs. They can listen to the same message. And one of them can be transformed. One of them can meet with the living God. And they can hear from him. And God will speak into them. And he'll, I mean, it'll be a transformational sort of day. They'll walk out filled with hope. Maybe they'll walk out a brand new person. They'll walk out just having met with and experienced the living God, the other person could be bored out of their minds. They've got their arms crossed. 
like, come on, preacher, move me, right, kind of thing. And, they, and, they, and they'll walk out the, in the exact same state as they walked in. Because oftentimes it has very little to do with the communicator. It has very little to do with a worship leader. And it has a whole lot to do with the state of our heart, doesn't it? As a church, I was thinking this week <laughs> about a story and uh, uh, was thinking we as a church started at the Four Points Hotel, right? You, how many of you were there in the four, at the Four Points? You, yeah, some of us were. Uh, great place to start. We planned on being there for a very long time. We were there six weeks <laughs> after launch and they closed down. We had uh, literally, I think we had like six hours warning that we needed to find, uh, we found out on a Friday mid morning and we need to find someplace by fri end of business on Friday. <laughs> and so we ended up uh, uh, landing in the Civic Center and uh, that worked out and that was kind of a God thing. But I'll never forget the first week we were in the Civic Center. Uh, it was uh, quite a day. We'd gone through it with the team and uh, and we'd ask questions, we'd express concerns saying, hey, I mean, we know there can be some electrical issues, uh, we've got lights, we've got amplifiers, we've got some of this kind of thing, and, and we were assured, oh no, there'll be no problem, it'll all be fine. And so we come in, we have our first service on Sunday, and uh, it, was, it was a couple rooms down, and uh, our first service, and it was a thing of beauty, right in the middle of the worship set that we're getting to the good part of worship, right? The team's up there, they're rocking out. We totally blew a breaker. <laughs> so we lost the sound system. The lights went out, one of the two video projectors. Uh, I mean, and so the only, you can't, you can no longer really hear the microphone at all. Alex is up there playing <laughs> and you, they have the amps. And so they finished, try to finish the worship set with just that. And it was, it was crazy and sporty. I came up and preached the message in the dark <laughs> for most of it for the first half of my message. I mean, we had a video, but again, like one of the video projectors wasn't working. It was a disaster. I mean, I tried to bring the message that God had given me, and yet at the same time, I was so thrown off and so nervous and so mortified over what was happening. I was totally not in it. You know what I mean? I, I probably would have squarely filed it in uh, the, the worst messages ever uh, file in my desk. And I, I mean, we got done, and I, I mean, we even had, I can remember, uh, I think when I first got up to, to, to start the message, we had somebody stand up and walk out, a first timer, and I was just like, oh, so we get to the end of the service, and I'm thinking, nobody is coming back ever, right? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's it. Game, set, match. And to be honest, I was so humiliated. I was kind of like, I'm not sure I want to see any of these people again anyway. <laughs> like, I would rather just pretend it never happened and sort of walk off and this is going to be terrible. I will never, ever forget that first service uh, in the Civic Center. And I think I'll never, ever forget as well hearing a story uh, the following week about somebody that came for the first time that week and who met the living God and who turned their life over to Jesus that day. Because as it turns out, the packaging doesn't matter that much. As it turns out, I mean, even the communicator doesn't, doesn't really matter that much. You know what matters a lot is a great, great, great God of second chances and people that come with hungry hearts and receptive hearts and hearts that are wide open to what he has, to what he has for them. The people of Nineveh that day, the king of Nineveh, had a receptive heart. The living God spoke to him, and he was broken, he was undone, he repented, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he turned back to God, and he's like, God, forgive me. Would you restore me, would you do, 
do something in my life. And God was gracious and worked in a powerful way. Man, can I just say, what could God do with us, right? If we had that kind of humility and that kind of receptive heart, the heart that's wide open, that came in week after week on Sundays, that came in, that was hungry and starving to meet with the living God, that, that we're praying as we come in, God, would you speak to me today? I need to hear from you. Would you, would you form my life? Would you do something in me today? What would God do? If, if we, during the week, if when we opened up God's book, we got down on our knees and said, God, would you speak? Would you lead? Would you shape? Would you have your way in me? Man, oh, somebody with a receptive heart like that, you never know what the living God is going to do. He'll do great things in our midst. It's the story of Jonah, the story of the king, even, in Jonah chapter 3. The people of Nineveh, the king, had receptive hearts. They received the message that God had from them that day. They responded, says they believed God. They turned to him and found a second chance. They were hungry for it, and God poured out his mercy. Third thing, we'll just hit real quick, and I just, I, I threw this in because I love it. Thankfully, God also brings second chances to imperfect hearts, to messed up hearts uh, somewhat like ours. I love how honest the book of Jonah is because God gives a second chance and even a third chance to an imperfect, reluctant prophet like Jonah. God gives him a second chance and says, go to Nineveh and preach my message there. And Jonah goes, but his heart is still not in it. Five measly words, right? His heart is still not in it. Forty days till you fry. His heart wasn't in it, but God was not done with him. So God spoke and gave him another chance. And this time he obeyed outwardly, but reluctantly. But there's something about this story I think that I can so easily identify with about his reluctant heart. Maybe you can identify with it too because I think in some ways I think we can be like a reluctant prophet. I think you and I have the capacity to obey but not have our hearts be in it. I think there's times when we as followers, like, we'll, we'll give to God or we'll tithe. We'll bring our first 10% of our income back to God. We'll respond to God. We know that's what we're supposed to do. And so, so we do it, but our hearts are not really in it. So we do it reluctantly. Because in, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, you know, I'd rather spend that money for myself. I'd rather hold on to control of that. I'd rather do that and use that the way I want to. I think there's times even when we know we should serve, and so maybe we, we show up and we serve, but we do it with grumbling. Our hearts aren't really fully in it. I think there are times when, when, when maybe we're in a bad marriage or something like that, and the word of the Lord has reminded us that divorce is not an option, so we stayed, but we're grumbly and we're not happy about it. We're dragging our feet and stomping our feet, right? We're grumpy about it. We're bitter. We're angry. We've done it, we've obeyed, kind of, right? But our heart is not in it. We've done so reluctantly. And I love that in the midst of that kind of reluctant heart, I love that God is still patient with Jonah. He doesn't snub him, he doesn't blast him, the kingdom come, right? But even when Jonah's reluctant, you know, obedience is reluctant, God is patient, God is gracious, and as we'll see next week, God is still working to try and align his heart with his actions. Psalm 103, uh, 13 and 14 
puts it this way, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are dust. There's something about that I like immensely. He remembers what we are. He's full of compassion. He's patient. He knows who we are. He knows who we're not. And he is full of grace, giving second chances and third chances and fourth chances, all while working to try and make us more and more and more like him. Because even on our best days, even when we are on top of our game, we are just desperately in need of God's forgiveness and grace. I was talking with a friend this week and was reminded of a passage that's in Mark 9, uh, where a man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus. And this kid had, had had seizures his entire life. He was driven by demons. Was sometimes, you know, the, the, the demon would roll him into a fire or into water, it says. And so this father brings him to Jesus, and he says this, if you can heal him, Jesus, please have mercy on him, right? Please do so. Please bring healing. And this is Jesus' response. Jesus says, if, <laughs> if you can't, you know, if you can do it, right? Everything is possible for the one who believes, Jesus says. And immediately, this is the, I love the Father's uh, response. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And there's something about that that's honest, something about that that reminds me of the reluctant prophet, right? That, does he believe in Christ? Does he know the second chances that God can give? Absolutely. And at the same time, he's struggling with living this out in every area of his life. Right? I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. We're dust. We're imperfect. We're tainted by sin. We're in process. And when we have hearts that are humble and receptive, God is so amazingly patient and gracious with us. He'll continue to use us. He'll continue to shape us. He'll continue to give second and third and fourth chances, even to imperfect hearts like ours. And that is good news, friends. God is a God of second chances. It's who he is. He is gracious. He is forgiving. It's not just something he does. It's in him. He wants all to turn back to him. He wants all to find forgiveness and new life. He's pursuing you and pursuing me, longing to give us a fresh start, a second chance this morning, if you'll receive it. I'm not sure where you're at with God this morning. Maybe you've been running from him in one way or another. Maybe you've just blown it big time, massive proportions, and you feel like, man, maybe the Ninevites have nothing on you, right? Maybe you're just feeling like, man, I don't, I've screwed up so much, how could my life ever be made right again? Maybe you're so aware of your own flaws and imperfections and sins. It's weighing you down. Maybe there's pride in you, and you feel like, maybe you feel like you're deserving of God's love and grace, but you're not so sure about some of the people around you. Maybe you've been living out your role as the reluctant prophet. Say, so, yeah, I'll obey, but I won't like it. Your heart's not in it. Wherever you're at with God this morning, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, maybe today the living God is speaking to you through the story of Jonah, saying stop running and turn back to a gracious and forgiving God, the God of second chances, and find forgiveness and restoration and grace. Maybe today is a time to learn a lesson from Jonah that you don't have to run, that pain does not have to be your teacher, that second chances, God's forgiveness, God's grace are on tap. They are available to anyone who is humble enough to turn to him and receive it, anyone who's receptive enough to hear his word and his, the leading of his spirit and live our lives by it. Our God is a God of second chances. Let's come home to him this morning. Let's, let's just close in prayer. 
Father, that is our cry, Lord. We are thankful that you are gracious, that you give second chances and third chances and fourth chances. For those that are nice and religious people, that you are patient. For those that are so uh, far from you, that we don't even have a category for it in every place in between. Thank you that there is nothing we can do. There is no distance we can run from you that you are not there, that you are not present and at work to try and bring us back home. So, Father, this morning we come and we just, uh, wherever we're at, God, we're going to stop and turn back to you, God, in humility, with humble hearts, with hearts that are hungry for you. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come into my life, come into my situation. Come and have every part of us, God. Forgive us for our rebellion. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our pride. We need you. Just restore us. Help us to step into the second chance to the new life that you have for us today, whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time, it doesn't matter. We want to experience and know you more, God. We want to live our lives with you and in you. Would you come and wash us and make us clean? And lead us forward, God, from here. We need you. We just open up our hearts. We open up our lives to you now. We pray, come and have your